Hi, thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Common. I'm Anthony Fury. For some Canadians, the pandemic is done, finished, over. They've been vaccinated, they see the numbers are crashing, and they're now out and about living their lives. Several provinces have even ended all restrictions, including mask mandates, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan. But some people are saying, uh-uh, not so fast. That Delta variant is coming and it's gonna hit hard, despite the vaccines. Keep your masks on, folks. We may need to mask up again. And as for those vaccines, well, we need controversial vaccine passports that even mandate annual booster shots in them. Are these just people who can't let go? Or is this all accurate and we need to remain afraid of COVID? Martha Fulford is our guest today, an associate professor of McMaster University and an infectious diseases physician based out of Hamilton Health Sciences. Martha, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a very interesting place we're at in the pandemic discussion right now in Canada because, well, I guess some people would like to say, well, we're not really in a pandemic anymore. They're looking at the summer weather, things are happening, kids are playing in their sports leagues, and well, like I said, in some provinces, people are just living life like they were before. But other people are saying, watch out, this is false assurances, there's a lot that's going to hit us soon, and it's going to be difficult, and this thing is ever-changing. What's your sort of broad picture on, on what's actually going on right now? Are we pretty much in the clear, or is there going to be another uh, very challenging hurdle around the corner? It's a very good question, and, and the answer, of course, depends on people's interpretation of uh, what we need to worry about as well as their risk tolerance. And we, we do have a drop in numbers over the summer. We also saw this last year. It was seen everywhere in the world uh, last year. And that would be because there is a degree of seasonality to coronaviruses. So I think part of what we're seeing uh, this summer is, is yeah, the, the summer hiatus. On the other hand, one thing that's fundamentally different now, and this is where I think you're seeing different uh, perspectives, is that we have been able to vaccinate people. And so this is a really good window period for us because the numbers are low. They're going to almost certainly remain low. And it does allow us to get as many vulnerable adults vaccinated as possible. And the thing that the vaccines have done for us is fundamentally changed what we're dealing with. COVID uh, during our second and third waves did end up with uh, a lot of uh, people being hospitalized, uh, particularly our, our vulnerable adults. The vaccines, while not eliminated COVID, will are really remarkable at how effective they are at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. I mean, there's never zero risk. So for us in Canada, what was the pandemic, uh, and a pandemic is is an infectious disease that is being seen in multiple countries, it's crossing borders, and clearly it's affected pretty much everywhere in the world, is now becoming more of what we would describe as an endemic uh, infection, something that is there, but it becomes more of a, a, a background virus, if that's the right word, something that we would deal with on an annual basis as we deal with influenza, as we deal with the other normal circulating coronaviruses. Most years we see four different coronaviruses. There are quite a few of us that believe that this will become our fifth circulating coronavirus. So the interpretation in Canada as to where we are, I think depends on the comfort level with, with the vaccination and the comfort level with learning to coexist with the virus. Well, it's interesting that when you talk about phrases like risk tolerance and comfort level, I mean, it, it does seem like what you're saying is how, how the individual really interprets the situation. And yet we're still in a position where, despite the fact there's been a relaxing of pretty much, well, many measures in pretty much all provinces, Ontario is, is still relatively strict, Quebec as well, but other provinces uh, easing them. I mean, are we at this situation now where well, it's no longer talking about, you know, should the government shut down the gyms or what have you? But, well, okay, if, if you personally feel that you need to make different decisions in life, we'll go ahead and do that. And, you know, we've been informed about this for well over a year now. We've been talking it out and by all means keep doing that. But the idea that there's a, a sort of all hands on deck society-wide uh, mandated response to it, maybe is the time for that coming to an end. At some point we have to figure out how we're going to move forward because clearly the only, COVID is not the only thing we're dealing with. Uh, and there has been enormous, enormous collateral damage, which I don't think we've even begun to to calculate or figure out what, what the, the long-term cost of, of 
lockdowns and our response has been. And so we do need to figure out how to balance what we're doing and how we're going to move forward in a situation where we try to minimize harms across all sectors and not just COVID harms. And I feel very strongly about this, that our approach should be one of all aspects of public health, it should be total harm minimization and not uh, only COVID. And so with the threat of hospitalization uh, really under control, the vaccines have essentially defanged and declawed the, uh, the virus. And this includes the, the variants, includes Delta. So while people might still get Delta, what we're not seeing in the vast majority of people is progression to severe disease and the need for hospitalization. And so COVID is never going to be zero risk, but it will be manageable risk. And so for a lot of people, it's getting that message out that with the vaccines, protecting our vulnerable seniors and our vulnerable adults that have the comorbidities, the risk of overwhelming the healthcare system is essentially not there anymore. So we also need to decouple, we need to separate the total case counts, which will not be really very relevant if they're mild disease in the community from the need to actually have our, our hospital system overwhelmed from it so that we can't provide other aspects of care. So it is a balance we need to find. And given that we are, Canadians have done a remarkably good job uh, at, at the vaccination, people have really stepped up to the plate. We have very high vaccination rates and, and they are still steadily climbing. If we could focus in on any pockets of vulnerable adults that are, that are not vaccinated, then we probably are in a very good position in our country to say that the pandemic phase, the severe phase, uh, is coming to an end and we do need to move on. And that does mean relaxing measures. It doesn't mean paying no attention to COVID. It doesn't mean not keeping track of what's going on. It doesn't mean sentinel surveillance sites. But it does mean that we have to acknowledge some way of allowing most of us to move forward and coexist with this virus as we coexist with other respiratory viruses. And Dr. Fulford, when you talk about acknowledging these facts about, you know, the, the vaccines and so forth, the efficacy of it, what's going on with these variants, it, it does seem to be uh, sort of the key issue right now, acknowledging the positives and what they entail. But I find in so much of the discussion right now, whether it's on on, on social media or in traditional media, or even among uh, people like Dr. Teresa Tam, who are saying up in press conferences, well, I'll remember the vaccines are not 100% perfect. And you're like, well, well yeah, you, you pick up any sort of uh, medical, you know, device at Shoppers Drug Mart, and there's always something on there about how, you know, whatever this pill you're taking, or I know they say it on the condom labels and so forth, not 100% perfect and so forth. You're like, well, why is she focusing on the, the, the sort of 0.5% negative uh, to the detriment of the 99% positive? I think we've, there has been a bit of a tendency the last year and a bit to um, zero in on, on the things that aren't going well and maybe not focusing as much on the things that have gone well. There are some very good news stories. I know it sounds odd to say that, but there are some very good news stories that have happened during this pandemic. One of them actually is the remarkable development of the vaccines. I mean, this is technology that um, builds on things that, that had been happening in, in science for a long time. We had learned how to identify viruses. If you think back to how long it took to say identify HIV, it took a few years before we even figured out what this virus was, that our ability to do sort of sequencing of viruses meant that we could identify this within days. That's remarkable. It also is remarkable that we had this messenger RNA technology. This is something that's been built on for, for decades. This is not a new thing that popped out of the blue, but it, it's almost like COVID arrived in time for this technology to, to hit prime time. There's incentive to use it, so it meant that we could ramp up and produce the vaccines really quickly. And they're extremely effective. It would be nice if we could have the messaging, these vaccines are well over 90% effective, particularly once you've had both doses, at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. It's true, it's not 100%, but it is very close to that. Because if we focused on that, it's a much more positive pro-vaccine message than constantly dwelling on the very, very, very small number of breakthrough, of what people are calling breakthrough infections, case numbers, that even then, 
if the breakthrough infections, as, as they're being called, don't end up being hospitalized or, or requiring, um, causing severe disease, that's still a success. Uh, because again, we have defanged this virus. So it's not going to be zero cases. And, and this is one of the really important messages that I think people have to understand. COVID is not going to disappear. But if we have essentially managed to render it not severe, that's an amazing accomplishment. And I, I, I do wish we actually um, spent more time talking about the positives. The other really positive story about COVID, which again is really undersold, is the degree to which it did not cause severe, severe disease in young people, children and adolescents and right. adults. I do actually think that as a society, we should minimize the amount of virus that is circulating uh, uh, overall. But it is actually one of the incredibly positive stories that children were spared. We did not know that in March of 2020 when everything shut down the first time. But this is something that, that we should be celebrating and, and it just somehow seems that we we seem not able to look at the very positive things that that have come out of this, and we keep dwelling on on the catast sort of catastrophizing everything. Well, well Dr. Fulford, let me get your thoughts yeah. on on the situation with kids right now, because uh, now, of course, summer in Canada, uh, we've got you know adults who don't know each other, who are going to the gym, working out maskless, and so forth, and you know that's fine. Uh, and yet in Ontario, there's conversations about, oh, well, I hope the schools will actually open in September, and oh, are they going to have to wear masks, and they have to wear them outdoors, and are they going to be able to play sports and so forth? And you're like. How can we have such a disconnect here where adults who are, you know, in a higher risk age category are living much more freely than in some sense kids are right now, who, to your point, we have found that, well, there's some great news here. COVID is really not hitting kids all that seriously. Yes, the experience for children uh, during this pandemic has been very different depending where you live. Ontario has uh, been remarkably uh, conservative uh, and risk averse, to say the least. It's no secret we've had the longest uh, school closures anywhere in the country. And it is no secret that there has been really catastrophic harm done to our children as a result of this. And this is, I think the United Nations uh, called this a generational catastrophe. Uh, there are obviously there are other, I mean, many children around the world have been impacted. and. If you are a child in British Columbia or Alberta or Saskatchewan, uh, things are, are essentially back to normal. If you were a child or a teenager in British Columbia, schools never closed again after September, well, actually, I think of June of last year. Uh, masking in classrooms was not mandatory for elementary school children. Um, if you are a child in Europe, depending on the country, you never had school closures. Really, it's how we prioritize things. The rationale for what we were doing for the closures, the rationale for all of this was to prevent community transmission, which would prevent severe disease in adults and thus overwhelming the healthcare system. With adults vaccinated, we should not be seeing that. Again, we will always have some hospitalizations. This is true of all respiratory viruses. It's never going to be zero. So when we talk about restrictions for children, it would be, I, th I think it's important to understand exactly what we're trying to accomplish when, when we recommend that. The children are not the group that ends up in hospital. Some may. If you look at the numbers uh, of children that do end up hospitalized, uh, that have happened in Canada, if you look at the United States, if you look at UK, um, the children who are unwell from COVID, almost all of them do have comorbidities. Uh, and fortunately, even that cohort do very well. So how do we balance this? And I guess I personally feel that schools, normal learning, normal extracurricular activities, are fundamentally important for our children and adolescents. This is the future of our society. The longer this has gone on, the more clear reports are of harm, the more clear reports there are of children just leaving the school system. In Ontario alone, the estimates are that there are 
in the range of 100,000 children that just left the school system, not because they chose to, but essentially that they just were lost. There's no incentive left. There's no sports. There's no music. They can't be with their friends. Online learning has been a catastrophe for a large number of children. They're completely disengaged. And how do you even re-engage that? And so our conversation shouldn't actually be about restrictions anymore. We're, we're hospitalizations under control. We're vaccinated remarkably well. We know now that children aren't going to be the, the group that ends up in hospital. The harm to the children at this point, to me, completely outweighs any conceivable benefit of having restrictions in schools. If we are in a situation where we see really high transmission rates, where we're seeing children having uh, becoming severely ill, it's a completely different conversation. But one of the things that's lacking is what are we trying to achieve now by doing this? And I don't see this conversation. People are scared. They're, they're, they're very risk averse. People are scared. They say everything has to be safe. Right. And you try to tease out safe from what? So they're not actually at risk from COVID. Our adults are safe now. We never actually saw transmission in but very much transmission in schools. Uh, we certainly didn't see, you know, huge, massive um, school outbreaks. Uh, and, and again, there's a whole conversation about what the definition of outbreak is. Right. And we know from other jurisdictions, this is important if we look at Ontario, where things have been very restrictive, that we can look at other jurisdictions. We can see how schools have been kept open. So instead of picking on the most severe examples, we can also look at the, the many thousands of schools that were open, where no disaster happened, where elementary schools children were not masked. I mean, I think we could learn. But more important for me is what are we trying to achieve? And the fundamental objective should be the absolute best for the health, for the well-being, for the future of our children. And it shouldn't just be fear of COVID. And I struggle because the masking, the physical distancing, the cohorting, all of these restrictions were essentially to prevent transmission to adults and overwhelming the healthcare system. And so with that under control, I do think it's important to have a really a really honest conversation about what is truly in the best interest of our children for their future. I haven't heard that in Ontario yet. The uh, recent document put out by the Hospital for Sick Children and the Ontario Science Table uh, is actually a very balanced document. If you if you read it through um, from beginning to end, it talks a lot about the fundamental importance of in-person learning. It discusses many of the harms that have happened to our children. It has a very reasonable scale-up, scale-down uh, algorithm so that if hospitalization and severe disease uh, is low, then we, we should actually allow kids to be kids. Uh, whereas if we start to see a lot of, of pressures in the community, we see a lot of pressures on the healthcare system, then we can revisit this. And this is an interesting uh, discussion point because this comes back to decoupling cases right. uh, from hospitalizations because we, we will see numbers going up in the fall. This is what happens with respiratory viruses. But if we don't see a surge in our hospital system, then we should just continue to to have a risk tolerance for this. And again, I would urge anybody who is worried about this to look at what has occurred in in other more permissive jurisdictions. We can look at British Columbia, we can look at Alberta, even Quebec with the most strict of all the, uh, some of the lockdowns, things with their curfews never shut down their schools. And we can absolutely be learning from different school systems in Europe. and I just, I haven't seen that conversation happening a lot at the government level in Ontario yet. I'm hopeful that whatever plan is put in place is, is a good plan, but none of us have seen it, of course, yet. Well, you touch upon something very interesting, Dr. Felford, comparing jurisdictions. So we've got, you know, the United States and Canada, which are not our different states or different provinces. I mean, is, is it different in terms of you know, various geography and demographic makeups and age and so forth. Sure, you know, they're they're not identical, but they're also not like wildly, you know, different universes there. And yet, 
uh, where I think we've been encouraged to not really compare jurisdictions. I mean, wherever you are in, in Canada or the U.S., I mean, people talk about this as if it's in a silo. And I feel like those places that have made great progress, why are we not learning more about them? I mean, we're always bludgeoned to say, listen to the experts and so forth. And of course, I, I, I accept that uh, line in the broad strokes of it. But you know, there are experts in all of these states and all of these provinces and the chief medical officer of, you know, Michigan or whatever state, that's a person who's gone to a prestigious university and they have the same credentials as the Ontario person does, the Quebec person or what have you. And yet they're all actually going in slightly different paths here. So I feel like there's a best practices that could be explored that in some sense isn't. We, we've been pushed away from it. We're usually very worldly people, but all of a sudden we're, we're we've kind of become cloistered in how we talk about COVID. I think it'll be very interesting uh, when we try to do a bit of a look back as to some of the different factors that came into play. There has been a lot of polarization of views. Uh, there has been perhaps, unfortunately, a lot of politics uh, with, with what should be a public health measure. The learning from other jurisdictions, I mean, I think in March of 2020, none of us really knew what we were going to be facing. Uh, and there were some fairly catastrophic images being spread around the world and some fairly catastrophic modeling that was put out. Unfortunately, the modeling, well, fortunately, fortunately, the modeling was actually very, very wrong. Unfortunately, it seems to have stayed in people's brains that, that this is sort of what the impact would be. Why we're not looking at what's worked and not worked in different jurisdictions, I'm not sure. There's a little bit of picking and choosing, I'm afraid, of looking at different models. Uh, depending on, I, I guess, what narrative one wants to support. I am very pro-education uh, and pro-schools reopening for children. So I would like to look at the jurisdictions where schools have been kept open and say, well, how did they do this? How did it work? What did they do? Because those children are going to do better. They're going to have an advantage uh, in, in their for, for their future lives to the children who have been cloistered, who have had educational interruption, who have had a lot of the mental health and physical health impacts of being locked down. And if we're going to advocate for our children, it would be nice to look at, okay, who kept their schools open throughout this? What did they do that worked, that didn't work? Because that is going to be what, where we should move. And, and a year over a year into this, we should absolutely be sharing information and, and looking at what's worked. If we don't want to look even beyond our own borders, we could absolutely absolutely be looking across Canada. And I do hold British Columbia up as a model because they did keep their schools open. They had very different uh, uh, restrictions in terms of what they did and, and that the children were allowed to do a lot more. And overall, I their curves were identical. I don't think that there was any difference in, in how COVID behaved. Children in British Columbia have had a significantly better and less harmful experience than children in Ontario. And, and that is unfortunate. We should be looking at that and we should absolutely be learning from what has worked in a place like British Columbia. Right now, one of the more divisive conversations happening in Canada right now is the matter of vaccine passports. It's a subject of so many newspaper columns, editorials, people are debating it, uh, whether it's on the television or just you know, amongst their friends and so forth, the notion that one needs a vaccine passport, not just to say travel uh, to a different country or to accept new arrivals to Canada, but um, a, pro a province-wide mandated one uh, that would apply to pretty much everywhere you go, to the workplace, to businesses. Uh, also, if provinces are not going to opt for a province-wide mandate, as a, as a few of them have said they're not going to do, then uh, businesses themselves uh, should be taking that on, some people say. And we've already seen uh, a lot of heated discussion when a business does say, yes, I am taking on this vaccine passport or no, I am not. And then there's various shaming for the respective positions that are taken and so forth. How do you feel about this conversation right now? I, I think it's pretty clear I'm pro-vaccine. I'm an infectious disease specialist after all. And with, with regards to the COVID vaccine, I personally have probably administered several thousand because I've been helping out at the vaccine clinics for since I guess early February. So I am very much in favor of, of the vaccination program as it's being rolled out. I think it's fundamentally changed the impact of what we're dealing with because uh, it, it means that what has become a very dangerous situation has become more of an endemic one. Right. But then when we talk about actual something like a vaccine passport, 
what is the objective? So this is a public health measure, and and I I'm always uncomfortable when I have when I hear sort of private sector companies or individual institutions deciding we're going to start implementing a public health measure, and what the exact rationale for it is. Uh, public health, of course, should be about harm reduction. It should be about risk mitigation, about about education, about encouragement. It shouldn't be about policing or about punishment or about exclusion. Uh, and that's just fundamental public health basics. So if we look at the vaccination uh, program, we were very high in Ontario and across Canada. We uh, will see a marked decrease in hospitalization from this. And I'm basing this on what we've seen from long-term care, where we essentially have 100% vaccinated, even with the Delta variants. It, it really is is a dramatic change. You can certainly see it from the United Kingdom, which as of Monday of this week is essentially what they were calling Freedom Day, that while their cases are going up a lot, the hospitalizations are down. So if you're going to say you're going to have a vaccine passport, you have to prove you're vaccinated. How is this going to be enforced? Uh, is this really to um, promote public health? or is it to discriminate against people who, for whatever reason, can't be vaccinated? How will we accommodate medical exemptions? Because there are people who, who, who require medical exemptions. How is this gonna be kept confidential? I, I mean, I am, as I said, very pro-vaccine. I'm perfectly willing to say up front that I am fully vaccinated and was happy to be so. But I don't really want to be giving my medical history to you know the guy at the grocery store or to enter whatever um, how do we ensure confidentiality and so public health measures shouldn't be up to individual institutions and there should be, be a good public health rationale for it and if we can meet our public health goals without some sort of a mandatory feature like this wouldn't that be better and so I'm uncomfortable with the idea. Uh, we already saw with some of the other public health measures that people couldn't uh, comply. And sometimes it was because maybe they didn't understand, maybe they couldn't for medical exemptions, that it really didn't lead to people being kind and saying, oh, okay, you can't wear it for whatever reason. It became very exclusionary and at times almost uh, uh, very unpleasant. Right. We certainly saw a lot of uh, naming and shaming and blaming, which is highly unfortunate. A virus is not anybody's fault. This is a pandemic that's happened. We've seen previous pandemics. I mean, we had H1N1 in 2009. We don't point fingers uh, when a pandemic happens. We will see future pandemics. This is inevitable. There will be another pandemic at some point, maybe another coronavirus. More likely, I would expect another influenza virus. And, and how we approach this is also precedent for the future. As a society, do we want to mandate health requirements? I mean, maybe the answer is yes, but I think that we should all take a step back and be really thoughtful about what we're trying to accomplish by doing this. What, what, what is accomplished? Is protected. Uh, what is accomplished and, by the vaccine passport? Because I, I find uh, like, you know, we had a certain COVID absolutism, if I can use that phrase. So you're at the grocery store and there's one person who's not wearing the mask. Who knows why they're not wearing the mask? Is it that big of a deal? Whatever the reason, medical exemption or the person's just, you know, refusing to do it or whatever. It's like, is it a huge deal if there's one guy who's not doing it? And again, vaccines, we've crossed the 80% threshold, as you say, lots of efficacy there, lots of good news to celebrate. So there's a, a certain and to your point, the numbers increase day by day. There's a certain catchment of people who, who are going to not get it for whatever reason. And why are people who are double vaccinated with this very uh, efficacious vaccine, why are they kind of almost stressed about the absence of a vaccine passport to the point of this sort of manic energy that now seems to have possessed some people? I mean, th that's the part that kind of concerns me. And and, and, and that, you know, is the social fabric being frayed a bit with this stuff that I, I feel like is largely red herring. I, there has been a lot of anxiety, uh, obviously, in our society over the last year, a lot of fear. 
Uh, there are people who, despite being fully vaccinated and actually being for very low risk uh, category for any kind of severe disease, even if they did get COVID pre-vaccine, are, are absolutely terrified still. And I do wonder if part of this isn't a, a manifestation of that. I also think that there may be a bit of a misunderstanding uh, with regards to what the vaccines are going to do. And, and there seems to be a, hmm. on the part of some people thought that perhaps it's going to make COVID go away. Uh, it's not helpful. I'm sorry, because I know you're part of the media, but it's not helpful when the media hammers in constantly things like, like discussing the very small number of breakthrough cases instead of uh, talking about how good they are. We, of course, are battling a lot of misinformation online from all comers. Uh, and so there are lots of different features. But I guess if, if before we did something like just say, we're going to have a vaccine passport, which will be very hard to enforce, it would be very difficult to figure out how to do this, it's going to end up discriminating against certain people, to actually look at, okay, we've vaccinated this many people. This is what we've seen with our hospitalization rates. Which group are not vaccinated? go in and target maybe vulnerable groups? Is it because of uh, these are groups that are already marginalized, that have already got a distrust of the healthcare system, they're already somewhat uh, excluded from, from many aspects of our society? Instead of further excluding them, maybe it would be far more productive and efficacious and have long-term impact to actually go to those groups and say okay what's happening why aren't you vaccinated i know some of the people that have been vaccinated in the clinic are people who were started to be able to come and we we, we had walk-ins because they don't have a telephone they don't have a cell phone they don't have a computer they're very marginalized people to start with and and this is the group that in some ways is going to be most impacted by doing things like demanding vaccine passports and so again, it's maybe not the kindest uh, approach to, to public health. It seems an easy one to do, but I think there are a lot of questions about how you would do this and, and what the point of it is. And this is, of course, why in Ontario, we actually said we didn't think it was necessary at the public health level because we're getting there without the need to do something like this. There are certain sectors within our society where it might be a different conversation. Uh, I. I think asking frontline healthcare workers like me to be vaccinated is actually not unreasonable. Uh, I As a condition basis, of employment? Because I know there's been um, past situations where yeah, nurses unions have actually yeah, gone to we've, court we've, over the flu shot. Yeah, yeah, we've never done it before. Though we are, uh, in general, required to show that we're immunized against hepatitis B, against uh, chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella. We have, we have strongly encouraged influenza vaccination. I, I'm not going to say yes or no, but I I have always felt it incumbent on me to do everything conceivable I can to ensure that I don't potentially put one of my very highly immunocompromised patients at risk, which is very different right. than the general society situation. And it's not from COVID alone. It's this, this, I would have had the same answer 10 years ago, that there are certain areas where I do think there have to be conversations about how best to protect our vulnerable patients and that would be long-term care settings frontline healthcare workers so there are groups where i think it's a conversation that could be had i don't know what the answer will be because again one has to think about how do you deal with medical exemptions how do you deal with there's all sorts of questions that you need to go through but to have a vaccine passport to go to the movies or to go shopping it seems a little bit unusual to me uh, those are low risk settings to start with uh, this is not where we were seeing huge outbreaks before. We're going to see fewer outbreaks because of the vaccines. We're going to see fewer hospitalizations. So again, when you talk about something like a vaccine passport, what is the reason, the goal? And, and it's it's a longer term question I'm asking. It, it seems sort of attractive, I think, short term. Uh, and as I say, I mean, some provinces have decided to do this. Uh, a lot of places that started with vaccine passports got rid of them because they realized it was actually very unwieldy, difficult hmm. to try to do. And it's also an interesting precedent uh, as a society to say that we're going to allow government, we're going to have mandatory healthcare requirements across all segments of society, uh, which, again, I mean, maybe Canadians want this, but it's certainly, I think, a very important question to ask. Is this where you want to go as a society? 
to require medical interventions at different levels. And it's fine, it's a pandemic, but this does set a precedent in, in terms of requiring certain things. So before one, I think, jumps into the idea, I think it would require a lot of thoughtful conversation, a lot of thoughtful debate about how you're going to do it, how, how you're going to implement it, what the goal is. Will it really change anything? Is, is doing this going to change the pandemic at all? Will it change any, any situation where we actually have some transmission? Probably not. Uh, so these are very important conversations to have before jumping into saying, oh, this is what we should be doing. Well, let's jump into one angle of this, which is vaccines and kids, because there's a lot of perspectives out there and a lot of chatter on that aspect. Vaccines are not approved for, for children, for small children under 12, I believe, anywhere in the world. Correct. In Canada, there is one vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, which is approved for 12 to 17 year olds. And actually quite a lot of teenagers, a high percentage rate take rate has already unfolded in Canada for that. There's been discussions about mm -hmm. risk benefit analysis in terms of things like myocarditis flaring up, and then you take the frequency of that and compare it to the frequency as a, of, a, of a risk of having severe COVID in those ages. And, and that's when you have some medical authorities saying, well, hold on a second, the risk benefit maybe doesn't line up here. And yet we also have people who are still pushing the idea, well, I, I don't know if I should take my kids back to school because they're not vaccinated yet and so forth. So a, a wide array of perspective here where a lot of people are saying, and, and even some jurisdictions saying, we don't even know if we want the kids uh, to be to be vaccinated, or at least to not push it aggressively among uh, smaller age cohorts. How should we talk about this issue? Uh, again, it's a very fraught and emotional conversation or topic. Uh, certainly, most jurisdictions in Europe have decided not to uh, vaccinate uh, all teenagers routinely. They're they're selecting. Uh, children with very high-risk comorbidities, uh, but but they haven't actually uh, broadly decided to vaccinate teens. Uh, other jurisdictions, I think Canada and the U.S. are probably at the front of the line. I believe Israel is also vaccinating teenagers, have elected to do this. The conversation when we start to talk about vaccinating younger people is very different, of course. This is not a virus that makes them particularly sick. And so when you talk about vaccinating uh, younger people, you need to be very, very sure that the uh, adverse profile of the intervention, in this case, the vaccine, it, that is very safe because this is a situation where the risk from COVID is exceptionally low for this group. So you wanna make sure the vaccines are exceptionally safe. And this would be particularly important in even younger children and the teenagers that we don't end up inadvertently causing harm. So the risk benefit conversation, there's an individual risk benefit conversation where there are some people who are saying that they perceive the risk of myocarditis as being much higher than the risk of COVID. And you're saying, I don't wanna be vaccinated. I wanna wait until we've got final approvals for the vaccine. I want to wait until we've got final dosing regimens or things like that. The, the argument for vaccinating uh, teenagers, of course, is that it overall decreases the amount of virus circulating in the population. Uh, and, and these are both, I think, valid arguments. We have come down in, in Canada saying we would like to vaccinate teenagers because we would like to reduce the overall amount of virus. The uh, countries that have just vaccinated adults did actually see a significant drop overall uh, in, in numbers in kids. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to, to monitor that. But again, if our objective is to decrease severe disease, hospitalization and death, we have seen that successfully happen with the vaccine of the adults. If our objective is to get rid of COVID, uh, that's a whole different conversation. We'll see. I mean, I don't know when uh, we'll have enough information on vaccines for younger children. Uh, it, it's that requires a, a lot of conversation. They they might have a different schedule. They definitely want require less of the amount of um, of vaccine. The we need longer follow up. I think in terms of ensuring that they respond the same way and their safety. And we'll see. But you're right, not every jurisdiction has decided to vaccinate uh, younger people and, and the rationale being that they weren't the people landing in hospital. And so again, it's a risk tolerance conversation as to whether or not one thinks it's, it's uh, worth it. My uh, perspective has been, I will ensure that 
uh, I answer any questions people have. I discuss the pros and cons. I discuss the possible side effects. And it, it's, it's as long as it's an informed decision, I have absolutely no concerns about vaccinating a teenager and certainly have been doing so. But I would also respect the decision if somebody said, I'd like to defer it or I'm just not ready right now. I want to see for more information. I think that's also a very legitimate response for the very low risk person. Whereas I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage the higher risk uh, uh, members of our society and adults to be vaccinated. It, it really has fundamentally changed what we're dealing with. Uh, Dr. Fulford, one thing that you have spoken about before, and a number of other people in Canada, of course, is about the the unintended consequences of lockdowns, the various harms that uh, have been caused in our society in a number of aspects, particularly to children. And we're now getting to a point where there's much more discussion about the things that have been caused, a sort of societal damage and toll that this lockdown approach uh, has actually brought upon society now that we're pretty much out of these lockdowns in Canada. What is the task ahead of us, either as a government or, 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 or for healthcare professionals such as yourself and your colleagues, in terms of grappling with all of this? I, I feel like there's there's things that we're probably not even aware of right now that are going to uh, sort of come out. We're going to learn about ramifications for, for months to come, for years to come. Oh, I, I think it's going to be enormous. Um, we've missed huge numbers of cancer screening. Uh, routine colonoscopy, routine pap tests for cervical cancer, routine breast screening. The, the These cancers don't go away, of course. So there's a lot of concern that we're going to see an increase in cancer diagnoses, but also presenting a lot later, which means that the uh, prognosis is, is not as good. We uh, have absolutely huge uh surgical wait lists this is just on the medical side uh we have seen some catastrophic uh, impact on the, on the mental health of children on developmental issues on their their, their, their milestones uh, the eating disorders the depression the anxiety and children because they're developing it when they're young and they're teenagers these are the the the, the very formative years and so this will have an impact for their entire lives. So it's very hard to know what the cost is going to be long term. I think we're going to you know, be, be still counting the cost for, for probably decades. The, uh, you know, there has been a marked increase in overdose deaths, deaths in the last year. Uh, there have been increase in, in overall sort of drug abuse. We know there have been problems with, with domestic violence. And of course, we have had spouses, partners, and their children locked into situations that were dangerous. Uh, and we've shut down a lot of the, the support services, the, the shelters, people people could go to for support. Uh, we shut down a lot of sexual health clinics, the STI clinics. So we have already started to see increases in sexually transmitted infections because people just didn't have access to a lot of resources. The economic impact uh, is going to be massive, of course. We've had a lot of lost businesses. We've had financial hardship. And some of the impacts of that take a lot longer. But people's emotional health uh, is very important. Uh, people who are no longer financially stable, whose economic situations uh, are now very poor, that has an impact on, on health. We know very, this is very clearly delineated, the, the link between um, economics and, and health, and the lower the socioeconomic class a person is, the more likely they have chronic health conditions. So there will be a lot of impact from that. And then the, the debt alone, who knows what that will be, but that's that's a burden for our children to pay. And these are difficult things to count. I, I've made this comment before, it's very easy to count a COVID case. It's not so easy to count depression that's going to last for a decade it's not so easy to count what the impact of an educational instruction is two years of lost education is absolutely massive for a child's future right. and in terms of overall years of life lost if you count it over the, the the lifespan of of our young people i would venture to guess we're going to have a lot more years of life lost because of that than we had from covid directly but that's a future payment we don't even know we haven't even started to count the collateral damage that's occurred in our societies. Dr. Fulford, one thing in terms of long-term harms that people who are still very concerned about coronavirus and are, are reluctant to, uh, I guess, fully accept the vaccine efficacy and, and fully say farewell to lockdowns is the phenomenon of long COVID. 
And there have been, I guess, not as many studies about long COVID as there is about, you know, more traditional what's going on with COVID and hospitalizations and all those numbers and so forth. Uh, so the conversation gets very blurred, I think, talking about this phenomenon of long COVID. To what degree is this phenomenon actually happening, playing out? What is the prevalence of it? And to what degree should people be concerned about this? Is this a big concern? We have people saying, okay, I understand I get double vaccinated. I'm not going to die of coronavirus. That's great. But, you know, I still don't want to get COVID. I still got to mask up or what have you, because if I get COVID, I could get long COVID and that could be uh, a lifetime of a debilitating uh, chronic issue or something like that. However, they conceptualize that. How should we talk about long COVID? So... I'm going to refer to it as a post-infectious syndrome. And the reason I'm doing that uh, is very deliberate because we know that post-infectious syndromes happen. Uh, we see them after influenza. We certainly see them after the other coronaviruses. Uh, there's a gastrointestinal infection called Campylobacter that can trigger Guillain-Barre syndrome, and ascending paralysis. The lot of respiratory tract infections that sometimes cause uh, neurologic issues in children fortunately they're, they're by and large very self-limited and so the the concept of a post-infectious syndrome is not new it's something we deal with all the time covid of course has hit us uh like a it's a tidal wave of infections and most post-infectious syndromes do hit four to six weeks later and so it's not uncommon to start to see post-infectious syndromes and you have a huge denominator, you're going to have a huge numerator. So when we think of long COVID, I, I suspect that we've got more than one thing going on uh, for post-COVID. Anybody who's been in hospital, particularly the critical ill, critically ill, do to have problems. And, and sometimes it's called um, critical illness, myopathies. I mean, we, we know that, that this can se severely debilitate somebody and it can last a very long time, regardless of why the person was in hospital. Uh, we have um, people who I, I think uh, are just recovering from, from not necessarily from being in ICU, but who just have a, a bit of a time getting, getting over this and it's going to be fine. We're going to have people who truly do have um, post-infectious syndromes. It's going to be challenging because a lot of the things that we would normally do for people to help them get over what are very real conditions are um, one of the things I've often recommended is to try to get back to normal routine, sleep-wake cycle, exercise. People need their support structures. So overlying uh, COVID has been complete isolation of of many members of our society and so it'd be very important to ensure that we tease out true post-infectious syndromes from some of the impacts of being locked in not having access to support structure not being allowed to exercise not being allowed to do all the normal things you would do to help yourself recover so the the issues are going to be i think very important to acknowledge that we do see post-infectious syndromes i actually suspect it's not going to be as high as some people fear because we have a large denominator. Most post-infectious syndromes actually get better, uh, do, do have a full recovery. And the, what I've seen is usually in the range of three to six months. But it's important to have control groups. In other words, we need to look at people who have not had COVID, and, and we can do that with blood work, so we can do serology, and look at people who have had COVID and actually try to, to make sure that we understand what is the effect of COVID and what is the effect of everything else has happened because it's important. And, and I, it's important not to label everything as, as long COVID. It's equally important to understand what is happening in terms of post-infectious syndromes. As I say, I think that if you actually look at, at uh, without the emotional overlay, if you actually look at the numbers, they're actually not that high. It is something that does need to be studied and is being studied, but it should be studied with, with proper control groups so that we, we know what's from COVID and what's not from COVID. At the moment, there's a bit of a tendency to lump absolutely anything at all uh, into long COVID, and that's not helpful either because it's much easier than to dismiss a condition if it becomes the all-encompassing everything anybody's feeling. Well, that's clearly not appropriate either. So we need to make sure that we're not lumping in true other medical conditions that we're not lumping in 
actual depression or anxiety, which some people are definitely feeling, that we're not actually looking at some other infection, that we're not confusing the situation, that we're not missing other diagnoses. And so the control groups, I think, are going to be very important. The Really, if we look at how many people have had COVID in all the different countries in the world, it, it I haven't seen that we're going to see confirmed post-infectious syndromes that are really long. There will be some, but I'm, I'm, to me, it's looking like it's going to be similar to what we see with other infections. Dr. Fulford, to come full circle, all of these issues we've discussed, which are the current sort of concerns and headlines about COVID-19 during the summer and, and as we think about heading into the fall, I mean, is it fair to sum up generally how you've described all of this is you have an, an optimistic approach to things. The vaccines are working. You know, yes, there are variants. Yes, there are concerns. There are legitimate concerns. Yes, COVID is obviously a very real thing to be concerned about, but we, we're empowered now with knowledge, with vaccines, with a path forward, and we should be able to take those productive steps forward now. Well, that would certainly be my take on it. I think we've had a really rough year and a bit. We've learned a lot. There have been some remarkable accomplishments. Uh, we have, in Canada anyway, we are in a very, very lucky position because we did get the vaccines and we have vaccinated very successfully because it is a very different story in a lot of places. Uh, there are many, many parts of the world where the pandemic is raging, uh, where they haven't been able to get vaccinated to vaccinate, uh, and it's a different story. And so we are getting a, a sort of almost like a, a I don't want to call it two pandemics, but we are in a very different position in Canada. We're extremely fortunate. We are going to be able to decouple case counts from severity of disease. Uh, we are in a really good position. We probably can move forward and we are going to be able to coexist with it. Uh, and we should be grateful because we're probably over the worst of it compared to very, very many parts of the world. So my take is optimistic. It's not one of saying that you're just going to throw everything out the window and that we're not going to keep monitoring. But I do feel that we need to acknowledge where we are and we need to acknowledge that we have to move forward, that we have to look after all aspects of public health. There's a very standard definition of health, which is that health is a state of physical, social, mental well-being, and it's not just the absence of disease. And I think we need to remember that. We have to start looking after all aspects of our health, both at the individual and the, and the societal level. And that is not just the physical, but it's the social, the mental. We need that to be a functioning society. And if we end up in a position where we have caused such harm that we fractured the fabric of our society, that is not a win. And so we're lucky in Canada that we're in a position where we should start asking and thinking about how we can coexist with this virus. It will become an endemic virus. Yes, we're going to see cases, but the good news is we're not going to see the massive degree of hospitalization and morbidity and mortality that we're seeing in the, in the second and third waves. Dr. Martha Fulford, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Full Common is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Common on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>